This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Witness Docs from Stitcher. On the day Isidore Banks disappeared, he got up early before the sun. He had something on his mind, and his wife Alice later remembered that during breakfast, Isidore had looked terribly worried. She didn't know what was troubling him, and she wasn't in the habit of asking questions. She and Isidore had been married for 35 years. Alice knew he had other families. She knew he wasn't a talkative man. So when Isidore told her he was heading out to pay some of his farmhands, she believed him. And as he pulled away in his black pickup and said he'd be back soon, she believed that too. It was Saturday, just after 7 a.m., and Marion was quiet. But Isidore drove only a few blocks before he ran into someone he knew, a young woman named Annie Will Johnson, sitting alone outside the bus station in the center of town. Isidore was friendly with Annie's family. They were African-American sharecroppers living on a white plantation a few miles north of Marion. He stopped to say hello, then gave Annie a ride to the house where her parents lived. Annie's mom offered Isidore coffee, but he only stayed long enough for a quick chat. Then he got back in his truck, waved goodbye, and headed toward the fields. These are among the only glimpses we have into Isidore's final movements. They're reconstructed from interviews and old newspaper accounts. And just beyond them, Isidore fades out of sight. I'm Neil Shea. And I'm Taylor Hom. This is Unfinished Deep South. Episode 10, The Things We Haven't Seen. What we know for sure is that sometime after Easter dropped Annie Johnson off, he vanished. He was found three days later, dead, chained to a tree, and burned almost beyond recognition. After years of researching Isidore's death, here's our theory of what happened that weekend in 1954. We think that sometime after Isidore visited the Dunlap house, he was captured, probably by a group of men, and probably at gunpoint. We believe that his captors were Italian farmers, and we think they wanted something from Isidore, probably a piece of his land, land he'd been renting from a white woman. We think the land the Italian farmers were after was a plot Isidore rented on the east side of town in an area called River Trace, where Isidore's daughter Dorothy lived with her family. And we think the terror Dorothy experienced 
the slaughter of her family's animals, the poisoning of their crops. All of this was likely a run-up to Isadora's abduction. And it was probably done by the same men who would go on to kill him. When we looked at the ownership history of land in River Trace, we found that there were two widows who owned land there at the time of Isidore's death. So did a number of Italian farmers, including Vera Simonetti's family. Remember, Vera allegedly told Isidore's granddaughter that her father said he'd told certain people not to kill Isidore, just to scare him. But the Italian community in Crittenden County is still tight-knit, careful about talking to outsiders. When we reached out to Italian families in town who were around in Isidore's time, many wouldn't talk with us. And the few who did said they didn't know anything that could help us with our investigation. So we couldn't reach that place where memories of the killing and of the killers might still exist. So the the first question I really want to ask and that I want to understand more is, are we sure? This is one of our producers, Stephanie Karaoke. She's been with us for a long time, watching our work, helping put together every episode of this podcast. Do we think that it was someone, for sure, within the Italian community that killed Isidore Banks? We're definitely not sure. We're not 100% positive. There's really just no way to be at this point. We didn't have a living witness that came forward and said, you know, I was, I was there, or I saw this happen, or I know for sure this person did it. Um, there was no smoking gun. So there's definitely no certainty in our conclusion, but we do feel like it's a theory that makes the most sense. Okay, so let's walk through this. Why the Italian community? Why do we think that this is the theory? I think for us, we had been hearing for so long these stories that were passed down through the Banks family and the African-American community that, that all mentioned Italians in some way or another. And then Jim Banks, Isidore's son, he remember he was about 10 or 11 when his dad was killed. He remembers the adults saying that the Italians had something to do with it. What, for you, kind of pushed it over the edge? What made us say, ah, you know, this is the thing that I think we should take more seriously? Well, I think it's really fit in with a lot of key details in the timeline of Isidore's life. And then on top of that, we find the NAACP report, which uh, mentions the same exact Italian theory that we've been hearing about the white woman and the Italian farmers wanting his land. Um, Very little documentary evidence exists from that time period. And most of it that does is comes out of the white community, the FBI, the police department, the statements, the local sheriff made to the newspapers. And so this here we have from 1954, an investigation done by African-Americans, and it really added a lot of weight to it for us. I, I want to take a step back really quick and, and think about the idea that this is where we're landing. And the Italians are the closest that we can get to figuring out who, who who murdered Isidore Banks. Do you feel satisfied? Do you think we have an answer? Well, I guess I think while it's frustrating that we aren't able to give any names with certainty, um, it does feel a little bit gratifying to have an idea of what was going on with Isidore, of what he was actually up against, and not to you know, wash it away as just a, another lynching over a white woman, but really add texture and context to Isidore's life and what he was facing towards the end of it and the forces that were kind of collapsing in on him. Yeah. 
we talked about how things like objective facts would be hard to come by in our investigation and that we would have to piece things together in ways that might not hold up in in court of law. And I think I feel good about us painting a picture of who Isidore Banks was. During our investigation, we had to make a lot of choices about what to believe and who and why. Anti-lynching advocate Ida B. Wells wrote, Those who commit the murders write the reports. The records describing Isidore's murder, the newspaper articles, FBI files, and court transcripts, were all created by the same white system that encouraged his death and tried to erase his legacy. If we went just by what was written down, that would have meant taking the county sheriff at his word when he told reporters that Isidore's murder had nothing to do with race. We would have believed his deputies when they said that Isidore was probably murdered because he was sleeping around. And we would have trusted the land records, which suggested that Isidore, a successful and intelligent businessman, let his land and wealth slip away for tiny tax bills. So we looked for other ways to figure out what happened. Oral histories, childhood memories, stories passed down through African-American families. We cross-referenced against whatever survived in the historical record, and we tried to find the context, see who stood to gain. And whenever we seemed lost, we remembered that we weren't alone. Isidore's story has been kept alive by a small band of people, lawyers, neighbors, relatives, activists, who refused to let it slip away for more than half a century. They blazed trails, we took what they found, added our own discoveries, and turned everything over and around until it made sense. After years of digging, we felt like we'd assembled a picture of Isidore in his life. But we decided that we'd taken the whodunit part of our investigation as far as we could, because knowing who killed Isidore wasn't our only mission. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hello? Hello? Hey, Lena. Hey. I just saw you called earlier, and I wanted to get back to you. I sent the text. Lena Williams, Isidore's granddaughter, has been researching Isidore's story longer than we have. And in early spring 2019, she called with some exciting news. Isidore would soon be honored in Montgomery, Alabama, at one of America's most important new memorials. It's awesome, huh? Yeah, it's crazy. It's amazing. Pretty awesome. I told Taylor when you started, I said, Taylor, this is our year. This is our year. That is like the utmost honor, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. To be there with all those people in Alabama, in that particular museum, in that, oh my gosh. That's amazing. Do you know if they're going to add uh, Isidore's name to the... Yes, that's what it's about. An organization called the Equal Justice Initiative 
was about to unveil a monument to lynching victims from Isidore's era. It was a way to recognize Isidore that we, as journalists, could never have done. So we made plans to meet Lena in Montgomery. Then we called Isidore's son, Jim Banks, and he made plans to meet us there, too. And soon we heard other family members were coming, including Lena's brother and sister and their kids, and Dorothy, Isidore's daughter. Up to that point, almost every conversation or interview or unburied record had carried with it a sense of tragedy, an echo of terror or pain. But going to Montgomery, it didn't feel sad. It felt like we were all going to a celebration. Montgomery is a place where hateful traditions collide with hopeful movements. In this city, like a lot of others in the South, you can find schools named after Confederate officers and statesmen, men who are considered traitors by most of the rest of the country. But Montgomery is also where Martin Luther King Jr. lived and preached. It's where Rosa Parks began her famous bus boycott. And it's home to the National Peace and Justice Memorial, the country's largest monument to victims of lynching. That's where we meet Lena Williams on a late April morning in 2019. Isidore and 23 other victims are being honored at the Equal Justice Initiative's brand new Memorial Center. Hundreds of people file slowly into the building to the sound of live gospel. Some dressed in their Sunday best, Others wearing matching t-shirts adorned with the names of relatives lynched during the same decade as Isidore. It's hot and humid. Perfume seems to stick to the air. People look excited, almost joyful. Overflow crowds stand in the aisles. Journalists wander with notebooks and cameras. A kind of hushed expectation fills the auditorium. And Isidore's family is there, seated in the front row. Uh, That is so kind. Uh, We are so thrilled uh, to have all of you here uh, at our new uh, Memorial Center uh, for Peace and Justice. We are just thrilled that you're here. This is Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, the EJI. He stands center stage addressing the crowd. When I moved to Montgomery in the 1980s, there were 59 markers and monuments Uh, to the Confederacy. You couldn't go very far without seeing a memorial documenting uh, that narrative. Uh, But there were no markers, no memorials, no monuments that even referenced slavery or enslavement or enslaved people. And we wanted to change that. And so in December of 2013... Stevenson is one of the country's leading voices on race and restorative justice. Last year, his memoir, Just Mercy, about his life and work was made into a movie starring Michael B. Jordan. But back in 1989... Stevenson started EJI as a tiny, scrappy group of lawyers who mostly defended clients on death row. We have a vision at EJI. We have a vision that we can commit this nation, push this nation into a place of truth and reconciliation. We believe there's something better waiting for us than what we've lived in this country. I know there's a presumption of dangerousness and guilt that still burdens black and brown people. It bothers me that there are young children here who are still going to have to face some of these challenges. But to end that challenge, we're going to have to believe these things we haven't seen. We're going to have to confront this history of inequality and injustice. But if we do it, And we do it together. I believe something extraordinary can happen. I know it gets hard. In 2013, Stevenson started with a simple metal plaque. He placed it down by the bank of the Alabama River to mark the spot of what had once been a massive slave depot. And soon after, 
EJI placed two more plaques in downtown Montgomery, both commemorating the domestic slave trade that had flourished for decades. The plaques were an act of public remembrance, a small but crucial step, Stevenson says, in the process of facing up to the terror of the American past and trying to atone for it. Soon he began fundraising, lobbying, and designing, planning the country's first ever monument dedicated to victims of lynching. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice was inspired by efforts to confront and memorialize the legacy of the Holocaust and South Africa's apartheid. It sits on six acres of lush green grass near the Alabama state capitol. It's open to the air, the sun, the heat, and on large steel slabs are the names of more than 4,000 victims of lynching. As you enter the memorial, you meet the first steel slabs face to face. You actually walk between them, like weaving through trees in a forest. The slabs are imposing, bigger than coffins, rough with a patina of rust. And inscribed on each is the name of a county, followed by the names of the people who were lynched there. As you walk on, the steel slabs are lifted off the floor until, farther in, they're suspended from the ceiling. The effect is beautiful and unsettling. You're looking up at a constellation of names. The slabs hang like bodies, all of it a reminder of a period in American history when a person was lynched every five days. Crittenden County has a slab of its own, with the names of eight men who had been lynched there. But you won't find Isidore's name. The Peace and Justice Memorial only contains names of victims who are murdered between 1877 and 1950, a period when lynching was a regular feature of American society. But now EJI is adding a new monument, just across the street, which includes the two dozen victims lynched during the 1950s. I'm so thrilled that we have in this place representatives of communities, family members, representatives of spaces for each of the 24 people that we will be honoring today. Brian's co-workers take turns introducing the victims, sharing brief descriptions of their lives and deaths. And after each name is read, surviving members of the victim's family are called to stand, and they're each given a white rose. About halfway through, it's Isidore's turn. On June 5, 1954, Isidore Banks, a black man and World War I veteran who owned nearly 1,000 acres of land in Crittenden County, Arkansas, went missing. According to reports, Mr. Banks was likely targeted for his economic success, but there's still little question that his murder was racially motivated. No one was ever charged or prosecuted for the death of Isidore Banks, which devastated his family and the local black community, leading many to flee the county or state. Today, we are joined by Mr. Banks' daughter, Dorothy Williams. Dorothy stands, a broad smile on her face, followed by her half-brother, Jim, who's more reserved. As well as one of Mr. Isidore Banks' grandsons, two of his granddaughters, and several... Lena, Isidore's granddaughter, was next, and then the rest of the family. Watching them rise in the crowded room was a powerful moment a visceral reminder of how many African-American families share stories like theirs. Thank you all for standing for Mr. Isidore Banks. We have a When all 24 names have been called and their stories told, we follow Isidore's family outside to the front of the building, where Brian Stevenson presents a monument of dark granite, carved with the name of each victim. A clear sheet of water flows down over the names. Isidore's is right in the center, not far from Emmett Till's. 
Stevenson says a few words, then a surge of emotion flows through the crowd, something like a great sigh. And suddenly, people are crying, hugging, taking photos, and laying white roses below the names. We catch a glimpse of Dorothy, surrounded by her family, before she disappears into the swell. Out at the edge of the crowd, Jim Banks is taking it all in with his wife, Elaine. How does it feel to see his name in the stone here? Beautiful. Beautiful. I didn't think I'd ever see that. You know, I thought those, as I said, I thought it was something that had been forgotten and nobody would ever remember it again. And uh, then it just surfaced. And under that, uh, uh, when they were started to look for the old cases, started the old cases. Um, uh, and then he was in the paper and it kind of like, and, and then uh, someone got a hold to it and it just went from there on, you know. So it was quite an experience that I enjoyed very much. And I am certain he would have too, although you may not have known it. Jim wears a cap and a polo shirt. He didn't show much emotion during the ceremony, but every now and then his face would light up. Does having recognition for your father today, does that, does that heal in any way? Or does that... That, yeah, well, it, it's certainly uh, probably under different circumstances. I might state that it would be something that uh, that would I'd be overly joyed about, but in light of the climate that has unfortunately surfaced under this administration, we're going backwards. So under this Trump administration, we're actually going backwards. We're going back to those days I remember as a kid. The ceremony, the monument, it was more than Jim ever expected. But his happiness is tempered by a darkness he's felt rising around him, around all of us. We, we have neighbors that used to smile, you know, and speaking like that, you know, who, it's, it's like we're not there now. You know, they just kind of like pass by. It's like we don't exist, you know. They feel emboldened by, by Trump. Absolutely. And it's just, it's really a sad situation. We're having a repeat of what we once had. Um, and we thought that had gone. I mean, we know that racism has never been uh, completely eradicated. We're aware of that. But we were, we, it had, as I said, maybe gone underground, where it's not, it's not cool to show hatred of people and this sort of that. Now it's becoming kind of cool to do that. Jim Banks was 11 years old when Isidore was lynched. He had a complicated relationship with his father because he knew that Isidore had other families, other children. We haven't gone deep into Isidore's adultery or his betrayals, partly because none of Isidore's lovers are living, but mostly because these flaws were used for decades to explain away his lynching, to dismiss it as just another murder. No one in Isidore's family believes he was lynched for adultery, but Jim knew that Isidore's behavior hurt and angered his own mother, and so it began to hurt him too. Jim told us that just before his father was killed, in the way of a frustrated 11-year-old, he wished his father wouldn't come home. And so, when Isidore actually disappeared, Jim blamed himself, and he kept blaming himself for years. Today, Jim is in his mid-70s. He doesn't carry the blame anymore. And while he still wonders about his father's lynching, Jim says he's made his peace with it. He's not holding out for a prosecution or an apology. Would you like me to take a picture of you guys in front of it? Or, uh, sure. Front, or... Jim and Elaine linger in front of the granite wall. They smile, point to Isidore's name. 
we take a few pictures and then back off, leaving them alone for a few moments as the crowd ebbs and flows and thins around them. Got everyone down here. Oh yeah. So who's with you? Can you just tell us who's with you my today? Daughter, my granddaughter, my, 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 my daughter, my granddaughter, uh, and great grandson, and my son. This is Dorothy Williams, Isidore's daughter. She and her family drove down to Montgomery from St. Louis. So you guys have three generations here, and then with Isidore, it's four. Right. It is. Uh-huh. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Because I know it's, 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 it's the kids, my, my child, and her grandchild, and her, her grandchild. So, therefore, it is. So, that's four, ain't it? Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, that's four. We meet Dorothy and her family in their hotel room after lunch. And after they told their family story to a historian from EJI, we sit for a while and talk. She asks about our investigation, and we tell her what we found. Our theory makes sense to her. The white woman, rented land, Italian farmers. Everything lines up with what was happening on the farm where she lived. But still, so many details are beyond reach. Um, we think there was an Italian woman who li- owned land out by River Trace, and her husband died in the 1940s. It's a combination of everything of what he was doing. Yeah. You know, they wanted the land. I mean, he didn't want to take everything. I guess he had. Maybe going, maybe messing around with my mama. You know, I can't really say that because I never seen it. Yeah, you wouldn't have tracked names that young. No. Yeah. Uh-uh. Like Jim Banks, Dorothy has kind of passed theories and motives and suspects at this point in her life. What remains is a sense of loss. I mean, during that time, you know, it was just, um, it was just bad, and I just couldn't understand how some people could be the. Be the way they was, especially going down the, going down the road and you see somebody's body hanging from a damn tree. You know, that, that, uh, you know things like that is just, uh, it just don't seem like real to me. You know, where y'all come from? Aliens or something? I mean, you know. Dorothy says she still wonders why, after all these years, no one has spoken out. Because I know they had the information that could help my daddy and could have helped them help put those people away that killed my father. They didn't care. Someone knew something about Isidore's death, maybe even lots of people in Crittenden County. And so the blame, the guilt for Isidore's lynching, it doesn't just lie with his killers. While our investigation pointed toward Italian farmers, that doesn't mean the rest of the white community is innocent. If Italian farmers lynched Isidore, they were borrowing from a violent tradition firmly rooted in white America. And in Isidore's case, Powerful white people in Crittenden County quickly took advantage of the confusion and fear caused by the crime. The lynching was used to crush the momentum of the civil rights movement by threatening African Americans with the bank's treatment. Most white people kept quiet after Isidore's death. There was never any protest, no calls for an investigation, no record that anyone demanded justice. White people in Crittenden County ignored the violence, tried to rationalize it, dismiss it. And all of that points to the central role of silence, of white Americans' complacency. It's something we're still living with. Does it? How does it feel to have your, your father included in this oh. ceremony today? I'm, I'm, I'm say it's, it's unspeakable, you know, because uh, for years, uh, uh, like I said, said y'all before, I have always thought about my father, but I couldn't do nothing about my father because I didn't know which way to go. 
But Lena, she did take it on out and say, Mom, I'm tired of you sitting around here mumbling. But um, what, they, what I seen today was it's just to see my name, my daddy's name up on that thing, on that, uh, whatever you call it. It was a George, it was a George of me. You know, brought tears to my eyes, yes. But somebody thought about my daddy. That's the main thing. Somebody thought about him, you know, the way he was done and misused. All them years, it was a dead picture. But I seen his name written today up there, you know, and it felt good. It really felt good. We left Alabama the next morning, flew back to New York City, and kept working. We spent over a year fitting together the pieces of this investigation. We checked facts, tested theories, tried to figure out how to tell Isidore's story. There's a lot about Isidore we couldn't fit into the show. Things we would stay up at night wondering about, like his time in France during World War I. Or just after, when he came home to a nation ravaged by the Spanish flu and the Red Summer, where hundreds, perhaps thousands of African Americans were murdered by white mobs. We wondered, too, about a juke joint he owned at the edge of town, where bluesmen like Howlin' Wolf, Sonny Boy Williamson, and B.B. King probably played, drinking and singing late into the night. And we wondered about the women in Eastor's life, his wife, his girlfriends. Their stories have faded even further than his. But it's important to see them, to try to imagine their lives. During the years we worked on this project, we talked about Isidore every day. Our son grew up hearing Isidore's name. He's met Isidore's survivors, and he's come down south with us on reporting trips for months at a time. Remembering all of this, it helps us keep sight of something important, something that's easy to lose in the zoom and pan of reporting. Isidore's story is about family, the large Banks clan that spreads from Illinois to Tennessee, Arkansas to Missouri, and Texas to Washington State. It includes Isidore's children, his nieces and nephews, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and a host of cousins. With Isidore gone, and his killers likely dead too, justice, in whatever form it comes, would be for them. Just as we were finishing this episode, the Equal Justice Initiative released a report documenting 2,000 lynchings that had been, until now, lost in old archives and newspaper articles. It also found dozens of incidents of mass lynching, when as many as 150 African Americans were killed at the same time. The American landscape seethes with these crimes. The methods of race terror have transformed over the years, but police killings and vigilante murders, modern lynchings of African Americans. Today's violence would be familiar to Isidore. He'd recognize all its forms. They're the same things he signed up to fight when he brought the NAACP to his hometown, when he joined its most dangerous committee, and when he co-founded the area's first African-American-owned cotton gin. Isidore probably wouldn't have considered himself an activist, but he saw what was needed. He believed change was possible. Isidore didn't live to see the triumphs of the civil rights movement, the March on Washington, and the passage of the Voting Rights Act. He died during a time when the seeds of that change were being planted, but hadn't yet borne fruit. It feels like we might be living in a similar time, when great change is possible, but not yet in view. Confederate statues are falling. Huge crowds are rising in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
can't see Isidore Banks without seeing all the others. Andrew Anderson, Sandra Bland, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Elijah McLean, Tony McDade, Corinne Gaines. We list their names again and again, and always it seems there are more. Doesn't this list tell us that it's time, that it's been time, for this country to finally reckon with its unfinished business? Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher and Market Road Films. Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea. Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson. The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Kariuki. Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Special thanks to our fact checker, Michelle Harris. Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins. Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello. Special thanks to the extended family of East Store Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories. Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University. And special thanks to Carmen White for her genealogical research, and to The 78 Project, my dad, Rob Hom. Lisa John Rogers, Jay Driscoll, Joy Okon Sunday, and Willie Gammon. Our interns are Sharuz Gaemi, Brooke Lamantia, and Lucas Noguchi. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Mm-hmm.